I literally in one day read this entire book, Black wow. Power in Palestine, in one day. That's a flex. Yeah, so I, I was like doing some <laughs> extensive research yeah. on the history of the Black Palestinian Solidarity Movement going back to the 1960s. Now I go into this whole thing about what's wrong with the discourse of the Israeli ambassador to the US and, and to the UN when he says like, there's no comparison. So like, what's the problem with this? And then I go into erasing decades of black Palestinian solidarity, historically erasing the modern resurgence of black Palestinian solidarity. And then also completely ignores the fact that the, the US and Israel are sharing in the oppression that they commit towards black and Palestinian communities. Besides the fact that like, it's totally false. There's also a lot of other things that are wrong with it. Yeah, you're about to go off. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I can I can already tell. You do your magic and you make it look good. Hello and welcome to episode number two of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of raising awareness about the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. My name is Lara E. You may know me from Instagram as at Girl. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's Mikey B. You may know me as Michael Scherzer on Instagram or Mikey Intifada if you're stalking me from Hasbro. I think we need to say thank you, first of all. Super to duper thank you. Everybody that's watched the first episode, I totally did not expect all of that. Shout out to everybody who subscribed to our podcast, followed us on any social media, posted about us. We had a number of high profile posts, so we really appreciate that. Yes, and we got so much love actually from Palestine. I, like It touched my heart so much to be reading people um, writing to us from Nazareth, from the occupied West Bank, um, even a couple from Gaza. So, I mean, I was just totally like touched. It was really, really incredible. And this is why we're doing this. We're doing this because of our love and respect for all of you who are in Palestine, in the refugee camps, um, living this situation every day, so. Yeah. The messages warm my heart. They truly mean so much to me. And I just want to say I'm humbled to be in a place where I can speak about these issues. For sure. Let's get right into it. We have so much to talk Let's about today. Dive right in. Yeah. So the people are waiting. <laughs> All right. So Today we wanted to address sort of this phenomenon that we've kind of been seeing a lot for so many years really and we didn't really have a name for it. I was actually inspired by, in our first episode we were talking about this notion of crocodile tears, right? Yes. And what we're going to address today is sort of similar, but not exactly that. So what we want to talk about is this notion of crocodile sympathy, right? It's different than crocodile tears, because with crocodile tears, what we're talking about is sort of like sorrow, right? Where you're using that sorrow then to justify oppression today. In this case, what we're talking about is public displays of sympathy that seem really kind of opportunistic and disingenuous and even hypocritical because what you have is very pro-Zionist Israeli government figures that are very unequivocal and clear about 
their oppression of Palestinians and their support for policies that discriminate and oppress Palestinians, but at the same time, they find it in their heart of hearts to show compassion um, to causes of equality that are not having to do with Palestinians, right? So when it doesn't concern Palestinians, they're all for it, but they ignore and they just turn a, you know, a blind eye to the situation they're actually responsible for causing. So right. let's get into it with some examples and I think we'll see how this plays out. This week I was taking a look at the Electronic Intifada, an excellent resource by the way, um, for those of you who shout do not out. know it, shout out to the Electronic Intifada for any news related to Palestine. One of the came, best online resources. Yes. Um, and I came across this article uh, from March 7th reporting that the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. and the U.N., a man by the name of Gilad Erdan, visited the, quote, American South and was touched by learning about segregation and the Jim Crow era, calling it, quote, an incredibly moving trip. He said, I can't wait to get back home and do the same thing to these Palestinians. <laughs> right. And in the same vein, the Times of Israel reported on February 28, 2021, that the ambassador actually compared slave plantations in the U.S. to concentration camps, but said mm. that there was, quote, no comparison between Israel's treatment of Palestinians and the struggles for racial justice in the U.S. I feel like we need to stop already and just like break this down. The Israeli ambassador to the U.S. and the U.N., he says, no comparison. Very sympathetic to what happened to black people in the South, Jim Crow, segregation, discrimination. But what's happening in Palestine? No connection whatsoever. And like for me, the most like absurd part about this is just the immediate denial, total state of denial, combined with absolutely no evidence to support the claim. It's... It, completely wild. They are Nick Cannon wiling out. And the thing is, they'll go so far as to compare their own, quote, liberation struggle with that of Native Americans, Black liberation. They'll be like, how could you support BLM, but not Israel? And it's like, uh, because Israel is a vassal of imperialism, perhaps? Perhaps. Because it flies literally in the face of everything that equal rights and social justice calls for. Right. So here's the thing. Like, if we just break this down, the literal feature of the Jim Crow South was segregation and the separation of black people from white people in all aspects of public life. So whether it be where a black person could live, go to school, whether they could use certain public facilities or not, the distribution of money and resources, whether and how they could use certain types of public transportation, or even whether a couple could have an interracial marriage, right? So that, that's what Jim Crow is. And I think we all know that there's no you know, debate or discussion about this. But if we actually test the Israeli ambassador's statement that there is, quote, no comparison between the Jim Crow South and the life of a Palestinian living under Israeli rule, we will see that this statement collapses under just the, the slightest bit of test, right? We're going to play it a game. It folds like a house of cards after Kevin Spacey got accused. <laughs> oh, my God. I haven't we even heard about him in like hey but shout out to Robin Wright I bet she carried that show I didn't watch you know what I mean but I, I bet like I bet she carried it does anyone know what happened to Kevin Spacey uh I'm pretty we probably shouldn't get into it on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> let's test this right we're gonna play a game the game is called sounds like Jim Crow or not okay are you ready to play you're the only contestant so okay. you win but you still have to play sounds good I'm, okay. I'm ready 
Question number one. In the occupied Palestinian West Bank, Palestinians are forced to drive on different roads than Israeli settlers, and they have different colored license plates. This is done to ensure that Palestinian cars don't drive on the highways that are made for Israeli use only, and which connect the Jewish settlements to Israel. So what do you think, Michael? Sounds like apartheid or not? Or sounds like Jim Crow or not? (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, Slip it's of the tongue. Mess, right? Turn, turns out <laughs> it's actually both. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, turns out that it is actually both of those things. What is hey, everything? When when did when did people have to like have separate sort of identifiers that would indicate who they were to authorities? When did that happen in Jewish history? Do you remember? Eeks. Do you remember? I don't. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's go. All yeah. right, okay, keep playing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you got that one right. I know that was like a really tough one. Let's keep going. Example number two: Palestinians are restricted to where they can live, and the enclaves where they can live continue to get smaller and smaller, and are determined by the Israeli army. The reason for this is that Israel continues to demolish our houses, steal our land, and move Jewish settlers onto our land in violation of international law. Slight tangent, I know that Mike Pompeo said that the settlements were not illegal, but Mike Pompeo literally just made that up. There's an entire body of UN resolutions voted on by the majority of the world, international law, including the Fourth Geneva Conventions, as well as customary international law, and U.S. law and policy, which says that they are illegal. So while Mike Pompeo lives in a fake world that he just made up, we here at the Palestine Pod, we live in the real world, right? Mike Pompeo, stay lying. According to the Israeli NGO, the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions, Israel has demolished more than 120,000 Palestinian homes in the entire area of Gaza, the West Bank, and Israel since 1948. And by the way, the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions is on the ground watching the Israeli army do this. And if you go on their website, this statistic is on the cover page. So these guys have been around witnessing these crimes in, in real time. And fun fact about the Israeli house demolitions of Palestinian homes. I don't know if you know this, Michael, but the Israeli army offers Palestinians the option to demolish their own homes. Sure. Otherwise, they got to pay for somebody to come and demolish it. Exactly. Like, what? Imagine being charged to demolish your own home. Like, to demolish. What y'all going? You are gonna first of all, you're gonna demolish my home. Which first of all, you're gonna demolish my home. Not cool. Right. You know what I mean by any stretch of the imagination. But now you're gonna add like financial burdens on top of this. Right. You've just right. made somebody houseless. Now you're trying to take their money. Right. Or offer them the option, which is weird because, like, in this Israeli army logic, it almost seems like they think they're doing us a favor. By giving us the option, like it's like the humanitarian way to demolish a house, you know, because they're the most moral army in the world, right? So they're like, oh, well, we give them the option. They don't have to pay the fine if they do it themselves. Like this is literally the logic. It's outrageous. that, That grandmother should absolutely do it herself as well. Like she, I mean, what? Her grandfather built the house. It's not a big deal, right? Right. She's lived in it her whole life. Who cares? Just... Get the lady a sledgehammer. She's almost <laughs> 90. Right. She's got us. You know, it's like, what do you know? Y'all are. So what do you think? Sounds like Jim Crow or not. Sounds like Jim Crow to me. Sounds like Jim Crow. I mean, what do you know? You're not. It's not like you're an expert, but I'm not. You know, but I'm like, not. and that's it, what they'll say. They will say 
what is what does he know? He doesn't know anything about Jim Crow. Okay, and it's like last... certainly not as much as them who enforce it every day. Uh, right, they're the literal experts. Expert on on, uh, on Jim Crow. Okay, last question for the day, Michael. Sounds like Jim Crow or not, Palestinians from different parts of historic Palestine are not allowed to live with one another when they get married. So, for example, if a Palestinian from Gaza marries a Palestinian who lives in Nazareth, Israel won't allow them to live together. Um, if a Palestinian from um, Haifa marries a Palestinian from Ramallah, Israel will not allow them to live together either. So depending on where you live in this complicated mess um, of a map, Israel will not allow you to move to reunite with your spouse if you're Palestinian. Sounds like Jim Crow or not. What do you think? Absolutely sounds like Jim Crow. Israel sounds like an RA in college. Like, <laughs> you're not allowed to sleep in there. Yeah, I'm going to write you up. Yeah, but like only if your RA had like an AK-47. Yeah, yeah. My RA was pretty violent. You know what I mean? So and not at, not not IDF violent, but, yeah. you know, close. And like surveillance technology and like the Iron Dome and tanks. My RA was not as well <laughs> equipped militarily. I will give you that. I will say that about my RA. I probably could have taken you it know if what? I wanted Not to. everyone probably knows what an RA is. It's such an American reference. So oh, okay. It's a resident advisor. Do we have to explain it? Yeah. Let me, go ahead and, let me break down the joke real quick for people, for the international audience. Okay. It's a good time. Share some culture. Yeah. Okay. What happens is... um colleges <laughs> they hire children to look after <laughs> other children yeah, um, they're just like two years older but like maybe even just one my RA one. was one year older okay. and i was like bro we're the same age don't tell me what to do you know what right, i mean right right um, but they're like paternal they're like your parents instead of yes. your parents when you go to yeah. college so when i was caught smoking weed he was the guy who caught me For you sure. know and, and they have to write and, you up well, he was pretty cool. Shouts out to my RA. Okay. <laughs> I've ha I did have RAs that wrote me up for smoking weed, but uh, okay. they were not they were not fun. Anyways, okay. uh, resident advisor is just a college yeah. student who gets to live there for free, gets to eat for free because they are basically a parental figure to the floor that they live on. And, yes. uh, you know. And they tell you what to do. They they control the they floor control ostensibly, the floor. ostensibly, yeah. unless you revolt, right? Which we right. did. Okay, and in this instance, we have compared the control over your life that an RA has to Israel's policy of not allowing Palestinians to marry who they want. Um, hey guys, uh, it's tough. <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> okay, so this is actually super Jim Crow. Just yeah. you know, to bring it back to the facts and the law. It actually reminds me a lot of the landmark U.S. constitutional case, Loving versus Virginia, from 1967, which I actually used to teach in my U.S. constitutional law classes in France. Can I tell you I was just thinking of that case? Really? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. I thought you were. But in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court actually ruled that laws which banned interracial marriage in the United States violated the U.S. Constitution. And these laws, of course, existed for much of U.S. history, and in many cases, they actually predated um, the establishment of the U.S. itself. And only in 1967 were they declared unconstitutional in the context of the broader civil rights movement of the 1960s. 
um, which ended these Jim Crow laws. Now, Israel today is basically enacting a form of this because it is interfering with one of the most sacred institutions that we have in this world who you can marry, right? Because if you can't live with your husband or your wife, then obviously that puts a huge impediment and, and it creates a huge barrier to actually marrying them. So this is what, what Israel is doing today. What, if I may, is the stated reason for not allowing couples to live together? So it's because Israel just simply does not allow any travel between the parts of Palestinian land that it has basically cut up into Swiss cheese. So if you're, a, if you're in Gaza today, you can't travel to the West Bank. It's literally impossible. If you're in the West Bank, to go to Israel is impossible unless you get some sort of permission from Israel under very, very specific circumstances. I mean, I have friends that are in villages in the West Bank that are like, we haven't been to Jerusalem in like 20 years. Like we don't, like it's like 10 minutes away, but like we can't go. Yeah, it's terrible. Because Israel doesn't let us go, right? So it's all about, it's part of the broader um, control exercised by Israel of Palestinian movement. Right. Coming to think of it now, it also stops reproduction, right? It stops the creation of more Palestinian people. Yes, of course. if you can't live together, you can't have kids. Palestinian women actually smuggle sperm out of um, Israeli military I saw prisons. that recently. Yeah, and they get pregnant. So, you know what? Shout outs to my sisters who are building families even under a brutal military occupation and are just trying to do their best to live their life as normally as possible mm. and who are the heads of the household while their husbands are locked up for God knows what reason in an Israeli military, you know, prison cell because yeah. they are supposedly part of the resistance or supposedly they are a threat to Israel or supposedly they posted something on Facebook that Israel didn't like, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Nobody's checking yeah. what they, you know, why they arrest us. It's not like there's any form of accountability. It's not like there's any form of, um, you know, review of, what, of whether it makes sense or not. Um, okay. So I just gave you three examples of super Jim Crow conditions that are being practiced today on Palestinians by Israel. So this idea that the Israeli ambassador can just be like, oh, no, no, it has nothing to do with what we're doing. No, no connection whatsoever. I mean, that's just totally outrageous. And I think the thing that makes me so angry is just that he can just say it and it doesn't even have to be true. Sure. And then nobody challenges it. It's like you never have to bring evidence to support your claim. I'm a lawyer. When I write, you know, a legal brief, I have to put footnotes. I have to submit exhibits. I can't just write, it's true, believe me. So outrageous. So let's go back to the article. This isn't actually the first time that um, Israel or its allies um, have offered really ironic support for black Americans, right? Um, if we look back uh, just at this summer, in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd, APAC, the one of the uh, pro-Israel lobbies in the United States, tweeted that it was, quote, mourning George Floyd's death, which serves as a, quote, shattering reminder of the injustice and inequities that black Americans still endure in our society, end quote. And they went on to say that racism and intolerance and inequality must end. People who support Israel said that? Yeah, I know. Wild. I That's actually read crazy. that and I was like, oh, okay, cool. So you guys are going to like stop doing what you're doing to us? Like, Do they know that Israel is racist? <laughs> I don't 
know. Not only is Israel racist against Palestinians, but Israel was racist against Mizrahi Jews, right? Israeli anthropology and society previously referred to Mizrahi Jews as primitive, said that they needed civilization. They argued racial inferiority. They argued against breeding with them, right? Mm -hmm. To this day, there's the organization, the Lahava, that expresses the exact same sentiment that Jews and Palestinians and people who are not of the exact same culture should not interbreed, right? It's led by a, a man who's been convicted of racism and terrorism. That's a fact. Mizrahi children were separated from their parents, right? Same thing with the Yemenite affair. They only recently copped to that, right? And plus, the chief rabbi of the Sephardic community called black people monkeys. That's ABC News, baby. You know what I mean? What do you... Plus, uh, I read from Victoria Silver. Uh, She's a Native American black Jew who recognizes Israel as, quote, another colonial state ruled by supremacy and violence that I will not support. Wow. Shouts out to Victoria I'm like semi in the sun still. It's kind of annoying. Just stay back. Just stay right there. <laughs> Jesus. You sound like yeah. the police. <laughs> <laughs> Just stay right there. Don't move. Stay back. <laughs> Just stay right there. Okay, that's not good. You, sa- you sound like an Israeli trained LAPD officer. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> stay back. Let me drop a weapon. And not only does the LAPD and other police departments across the country train with Israel, like military drills and, you know, counterterrorism, counterterrorism drills to be used inside of civilian populations. But they also have a policy of dropping weapons, right? Dropping weapons on suspects after they've been shot. It's very common in the United States for a person to be shot unarmed, right? A black male shot unarmed, black woman, anyone uh, shot unarmed. And the police have what they call drop weapons. And this is a, this has a name. Yeah, they're called drop weapons. Co- by the police. The police have their own name for it, exactly. And they are often these guns that are constructed of various different parts with no trace back to any one particular gun so it's like where did these where did this gun even come from you know what i mean it's like a frankenstein gun and then they just drop it on scene and they're like yup he had a gun and that's very common as well in israel uh where palestinians will just be living their life get shot in broad daylight and then somebody just walks by with a knife drops it at their head And then they take a picture of the knife, right, and circulate that online. And they're like, look, this seven-year-old child was about to stab someone. And it's like, all right, okay, whatever you say, Papa. Mm, Yeah, yeah, it's true. The the notion of um, alleged knife attacks. It's like you are like wearing eight levels of SWAT gear. They look like Ninja Turtles. Like... You're scared of a child? Like a knife. Like, like, let's say he had a knife. Let's say for argument's sake, he had a knife. I don't train Krav Maga. <laughs> I don't know what that is. It's the their, their fighting force that they brag about so much. Oh, But it's okay. like, it seems like they are only working on their index finger. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's we've heard a lot of these stories about Palestinians who are just killed in broad daylight, extrajudicial killings, and then they accuse them of having knives and 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 again, there's there's no check. Nobody nobody is there to actually say there was a knife, there wasn't a knife because Israeli soldiers when they're committing these crimes, there's never any accountability. These never go anywhere. These, you know, these cases never go anywhere. Nothing ever happens. You know, it, 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 it's it's very similar to the to the situation in the U.S. where you see these these police killings of of black men and women and children, and and there's almost never any accountability ever, ever, ever. So you you just do it and you just get away with it, and and you know, at best, you might get some paid leave, you know, a little vacation time, and that's about it what's wrong with the discourse of the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. And, and to the U.N. when he says, like, there's no comparison. So, like, what's the problem with this? It also erases decades of Black and Palestinian solidarity historically since the 1960s, okay? These ties run very deep. The Black Power Movement in the 1960s actually issued the first significant statements in support of Palestinians that reached an American audience. And they did this because they were coming from this internationalist framework that was anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist, and anti-racist. They extended solidarity to all oppressed peoples of the world, and they saw Palestinians actually as people of color fighting a liberation struggle against a global system of oppression. So the book Black Power and Palestine gives us a flavor of what that solidarity looked like. And if any of you guys are actually interested in this subject, I highly recommend that book to you. But I just wanted to share with you some of the quotes that came from some of these really leading black figures in this time period. So Malcolm X, first of all, following a trip to Gaza in 1964, where he visited Palestinian refugee camps, he authored an article that was called Zionist Logic. And in that article, he questions whether, quote, the Zionists had the legal or moral right to invade Arab Palestine, uproot its Arab citizens from their homes, and seize all Arab property for themselves, just based on the religious claim that their forefathers lived there thousands of years ago. Only a thousand years ago, Malcolm said, the Moors lived in Spain. Would this give the Moors of today the legal and moral right to invade the Iberian Peninsula, drive out its Spanish citizens, and then set up a new Moroccan nation where Spain used to be, as the Zionists have done to our Arab brothers and sisters in Palestine? End quote. Malcolm eventually concluded that the Zionist argument to justify Israel's present occupation of Arab Palestine has, quote, no intelligent or legal basis in history, not even in their own religion, end quote. And that's putting it lightly. I mean, honestly, like... That's polite, Malcolm X. <laughs> it really right? is, That's right? post-Mecca Malcolm X. Yes. He was, like, toned down then. Yeah. Well, he was just more filled with compassion, I think. Right? Like his heart had grown in a way that it was colder before. And it was colder because of the circumstances he was subjected to by the United States government, the police force, Harlem police, etc. Right. But it doesn't stop with Malcolm, right? Many of the Black Power activists, including members of the SNCC, were inspired by the work of the intellectual and psychiatrist Franz Fanon, who came from Martinique, um, one of the French Caribbean uh, islands. He's the author of The Wretched of the Earth, and he supported the Algerian resistance against French colonialism. But what's important to know about Franz Fanon is that 
he really conceptualized this idea of the brotherhood between Arabs and blacks and the notion that because they were both subject to French colonialism, that they had this inherent connection with one another um, that was forged by resistance to colonial forces. Um, and we can also look at a lot of the other black power organizations that were at the time issuing statements in the 60s condemning Israel's occupation of the Palestinian West Bank and Gaza. And get this, at that very time, they were having to make the distinction between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. You had black power activists coming out and saying, look, we condemn what Israel is doing in the West Bank and Gaza, but... This condemnation does not imply anti-Semitism. So these activists were already fighting the same fight that we are fighting today, right? This idea that when you condemn the actions of a nation state that is actually carrying out a very real deprivation of rights for another people, that this, that this is a legitimate exercise. This is a legitimate grievance that you are making. And that this is not in any way driven by an inherent hatred of the oppressor. It's driven by the fact that the oppressor is oppressing in that instance, right? Not It's not about you or your characteristics, it's just that you like took my house. Kwame Ture, formerly Stokely Carmichael, was very clear that Zionism is a branch of British imperialism and introduced a settler colonial state into the Middle East, right? On top of an existing indigenous population. I have a great quote from him. He said, Israel is a settler colony. European Jews leave Europe, go to Palestine, change the name to Israel, expel the original inhabitants, the Palestinian Arabs, and dominate the land. 100%. Couldn't be clearer. So, and that's one of the leaders of the Black Liberation Movement. I still get idiots in my comments coming and being like, what does he know about liberation? It's like, really? That's the angle you want to take? Yeah, I mean, it's just not based in facts. So when you are coming from a place of principle and a place of, you know, facts matter, then yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, what, what what can you say to these people? Staying on Kwame Ture, he, he has another really, really, really amazing quote, which I really like want to reflect on. He said, I have two dreams in my life. My dreams are rooted in reality, not imagery. I dream, number one, of having coffee with my South African wife in South Africa, and number two, of having mint tea in Palestine. Mm. I think for me, what he's touching on here is that when you are not free, when you don't have rights, the simple things in life are never guaranteed because there's a system of oppression that is a daily reality to you that you have to navigate that takes things as simple as having a cup of tea, you know, and, and transforms them into these sort of, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. Am I going to, you know, be back in time? Is the checkpoint going to hold me up? Am I going to get shot by an Israeli soldier? You know, am I going to have to stand in line for six hours? Am I going to, you know, like everything is subject to the arbitrary choice or decision of your colonizer, of your oppressor, of your dominator, of your colonial master. And you don't get to plan your life the way that you do if you live in a free society. Certainly not if you live in the only democracy in the Middle East. So here's the thing. We've already talked about how there's this historical reality of a black Palestinian solidarity movement. But it's not only historical. It's also modern and it exists today as well. Right. Um, 
there was especially a resurgence of the Black Palestinian Solidarity Movement that was reinforced following the murder of Mike Brown uh, by Ferguson police in 2014. Now, this took place in parallel to Israel's um, military assaults on Gaza during that summer. And what you saw was a solidarity that was created whereby Palestinians who were protesting and who are accustomed to dealing with tear gas and they know exactly what to do and how to treat it when the Israeli tear gas hits them were tweeting and sending advice to protesters in Ferguson that were dealing with the highly militarized U.S. police, which was also tear gassing protesters, right? Um, and these alliances are being made at the grassroots level uh, amongst individuals, but also institutions. Just take, for example, the 2015 Black Solidarity Statement with Palestine. It was signed by over a thousand Black activists and scholars, including the founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. We also have, for example, Mark Lamont Hill, whose latest book, Except for Palestine, addresses the Palestinian exception to so-called progressive politics. Um, and then very recently, Dr. Cornell West, who actually left Harvard following the university's refusal to grant him tenor for his belief that the ugly Israeli occupation of precious Palestinians is wrong. And that while his controversial and outspoken views about critiques of empire and capitalism and white supremacy and male supremacy and homophobia are tolerated, any serious engagement around the issues of the Israeli occupation are rendered highly suspect and reduced to anti-Jewish hatred and, and prejudice. So basically, Dr. West was more or less shown the boot by Harvard and, you know, he ended up leaving and it was because of his support for Palestinian human rights. And not only was Dr. West robbed of tenure by Harvard, who had previously given him tenure, but he was robbed of the opportunity to be even considered for tenure, even though that is what the board had recommended. It's extremely rare that an institution doesn't grant tenure to somebody who's been recommended for tenure, right? We also have Dr. Michelle Alexander, who's an incredible scholar and wrote the book, The New Jim Crow. She came out with an article in the New York Times where she said, look, we have to with as much courage and conviction as we can, speak out against a system of legal discrimination that exists inside Israel. And she was talking about the system of apartheid that Israel's leading human rights organization now has finally called apartheid, right? Mm -hmm. So there's so many examples. Nelson Mandela never forget that he told a crowd in Pretoria, South Africa in 1997 on the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people that we all know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. Yes. Desmond Tutu has been on record a number of times saying that Palestinians experience apartheid. And just recently this month, actually, Angela Davis said, and I quote, as someone who has long supported the Palestinian people, I know that we cannot capitulate here. The field of ethnic studies is not complete without the inclusion of content related to Palestine, Palestinians, and Palestinian Americans. To attempt to erase Palestinians from the curriculum is to engage in an intellectual strategy that reiterates the non-recognition of Palestinians by the state of Israel and is a part of the political process that Israeli historian Elon Pape refers to as ethnic cleansing. That's Professor Angela Davis on March 4th, 2021. Yeah, that's, again, clear as day. I forgot to even mention the Palestinians, right, that are, that I'm... Um are working and doing this work now. There was there's so many historically the book goes into it. I can't we don't have time to cover it, but like just in the modern sense, 
the legal scholar Nora Arakat, of course, has done a lot of work in this field. Ahmed Abuznaid, also formerly of the Dream mm-hmm. Defenders, and today the executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, also super active in the Black Palestinian um, Solidarity Movement. So these connections continue to be made. And, you know, as a Palestinian, I fiercely support all Black people and all people of color all over the world in their struggle for liberation, freedom, and equality, right? I mean, it's so, again, like, I, I feel like when I say this, like, it's just so, it's so obvious. Like, I should, why do we even have a podcast about this? Like, so clear and logical and meaningful. I think that's why we have the podcast. One more I, thing about, <laughs> and one more thing about Angela Davis, though. Angela Davis did a panel uh, maybe a year or so ago with my friend Heba Jamal. Shouts out, Heba. And she, Later, Angela Davis spoke the next day about how she was so inspired by this young Palestinian girl and she met Heba. And just think that that's so amazing that like all of our idol is inspired by one of our peers, right? One, and it's like Heba is amazing. She's doing great work. Follow her on all of her social medias. I'll put it all in right here. Um, but just the idea that uh, Angela Davis could be inspired by one of my, my friends, right? Okay. Makes me think that like the work that we're all doing is so important. And so shouts out to Heba, shouts out to Professor sure. Angela Davis. The, the, the power is always with the people and the people doing the work on the ground. Like, I want to talk about this. Like, the, there's actually a great deal of racism in Israel against black yes. people yes, as for well. Sure. And it's part of the systemic issues that exist um, in Israeli society. And I just have a quick anecdote that I wanted to share. The first and only time that I went to Palestine, I landed in uh, Tel Aviv and I was actually traveling with a group of Americans um, out of DC. We were going on a sort of fact finding trip. There was another Palestinian on the trip and there was also a black minister from a Baptist church, right? We were a group of like 20 or so. The only people who got pulled aside for additional questioning. Hold on, hold up. Let me guess. You, as a yeah. Palestinian. Yes. The other Palestinian. Yes. And the black guy. Yes. Hey. That's literally it. The IDF honestly could hire me. I'm pretty good at that. that I was- mean, I feel like you passed. Like, you, you're hired. <laughs> they tried. Honestly, they tried really hard to get me. Uh, Did they, they really? Yeah, of course. Every birthright trip is like they try and sell you the IDF as a lifestyle choice. They want so many of these so-called lone soldiers who come from other countries and serve in the IDF. They recruit in Canada, even though it's illegal to do so. It's a problem. And they're they're indoctrinating children, right? Because it's like, it's a smooth one-two step from come on a nice little trip to Israel, right? You'll be on the beach of Tel Aviv, la, 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 yeah. la. And then all of a sudden you're cleaning toilets in the IDF and you're like, oh, how did I get here? This is just like joining ISIS. <laughs> right. You know what's crazy? We went to the um, Holocaust Museum in West mm-hmm. Jerusalem mm-hmm. and I saw a birthright trip in the museum when we were there. You know what the weird part was? They were being escorted through the museum with armed soldiers like that had AK-47s you know, just in plain sight. And I was like, wait, why does the birthright trip have soldiers? They were the only ones that had soldiers. So I went to the front desk and I was like, hi, I'd like a soldier. 
And they were like, what? And I was like, well, I noticed that you have some groups walking through here and they are being accompanied by soldiers. I'd like one since apparently it's so dangerous, right? To be here. Y'all rent them out by the hour or? Like, how does this work? Like rent a soldier? Like, I don't understand. They thought I was absolutely nuts, but that's exactly the point, right? Like, what are these soldiers doing here and why are they only accompanying the birthright trip? The fact that there was no self-awareness of the people being escorted by soldiers in the Holocaust Museum is pretty scary, actually, as a Jew, I gotta say. Psychologically, like, the idea is obviously to make them feel like they are under constant threat while they're ingesting these images. Yeah. And it, and it I mean, it, it's so obvious to, like, it's everyone else. It's a further manipulation of Holocaust trauma that is the basis for which Israel was founded. And they have never let up they will still reference the Holocaust as a reason to oppress Palestinians. It makes no sense at all. And it's super disrespectful and disgusting to the actual Holocaust. This reminds me of um, when I participated in the Gaza Freedom March. Uh, It was around 2009, 2010. Basically, it was an international coalition of over like 1,500 activists that came from all over the world. And we basically traveled to Cairo with the aim of taking buses to the border where, you know, the Rafah crossing with Gaza so that we could break the siege on Gaza. One of the individuals who traveled with us to Cairo left her home in America was like an 80-something-year-old Holocaust survivor. Her name was Hetty Epstein. She passed away several years later, but I still have in my mind the image of this woman who was so frail and so small and like short and just so cute and so sweet. And and I spoke to her and I just remember her saying that like what Israel's doing is wrong and that she couldn't sit by and and just watch it. She had to come here to Cairo to physically participate in, in an effort to break the siege. We were never allowed to go to Gaza and eventually the Egyptian government interfered with our bus permits and so we ended up protesting in Cairo, which was really weird because it was a year before the actual revolution uh, and we protested in Tahrir Square and so it was like very like weird and like, you know, like a premonition of things to come. But it was crazy to me because I'm here, I'm looking at this woman, she's older than my grandma and it was so important for her to be there. And I think what you're saying is right. Like, Like so many of these people who who went through the most horrible things would not at all agree if they were still alive today with what Israel's doing in the name of Jewish people. Many Holocaust survivors are still alive today. More than 50,000 of them live in poverty in Israel. Many would not survive if not for the volunteer-led efforts of providing food. Israel does not care about those people. They only care about the image of the Holocaust, the ability to use and weaponize the Holocaust to their advantage to silence Palestinian activism, to delegitimize people uh, online. It's really only a tool for them. They don't care at all about the actual events, because if they cared about the actual events, they wouldn't be murdering people. We literally have to go back to the point of this episode, which was to talk about this notion of crocodile sympathy. Okay, I have another example of it. I have one more example of it before we go to something else. In the last few weeks, Israel sent COVID vaccines to the Czech Republic and to Honduras, okay? Did you hear about this? 
I did, yes. Yeah, so they sent them those vaccines in exchange for commitment that those two countries would move their diplomats to Jerusalem, right? So this is just to cement the further ongoing theft of Jerusalem, which Israel has been um, very aggressively engaged in, especially in the last few years. Shout out to everyone in East Jerusalem who is resisting house demolitions, which have reached record rates. Um, um, in the last few years, and and you know we see videos of this all the time. So Israel sent these vaccines to the Czech Republic and Honduras. At the same time, they're depriving millions of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank from having these vaccines. Obviously, this is a clear violation of Israel's responsibilities as an occupying power under international law. But it doesn't just stop there. As of the taping of this episode, an Israeli is 60 times more likely to be vaccinated against COVID than a Palestinian. This statistic comes directly from the ground from Matthias Kennis, who is a medical advisor working on the ground in Palestine with Doctors Without Borders. Absolutely insane. But at the same time, it's doing all these PR sort of plays being like, hey, look at us, we're so humanitarian, we send vaccines to Honduras, we send vaccines to the Czech Republic. But like literally, meanwhile, Palestinians are like, hi, um, you're preventing vaccines from entering Gaza, like, can you kind of stop? And also earlier this year, Israel literally demolished a COVID testing center in the West Bank. Mm. So like, what? That's one way to come back negative. Crocodile sympathy. Like, I don't I don't think for one second that Israel cares about Honduras or the Czech Republic. It's posturing. Not. It's posturing to look a certain way where if you're not really paying attention, like if you're not really doing all this research, you're going to be like, oh, Israel's so great. They sent these vaccines to Honduras and Honduras is like really poor country. So that sounds cool. On its face, that sounds good. And then you realize that it's further cementing the land theft of Jerusalem and you're like, ah, maybe not. Maybe not so good. So that's what we have, ladies and gentlemen. We have crocodile sympathy. And, uh, you know, I've seen so many examples of this lately. I saw another example that was posted um, by the food vendor's account. She she referred to a, a post that was made by the Israeli army of a female soldier who was donating her hair. And I think, you know, the comment was like, wouldn't it just be easier to stop preventing Palestinians who have cancer from getting treatment and bombing hospitals and like, using weaponry that causes cancer, like chemical weapons. Right. How many Palestinians are going through cancer right now because they've been subjected to munitions dropped by the Israeli army? White phosphorus, which Israel used on Gaza. And we know because it was reported by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. Can't be good for you. Literally melts your skin. Let her keep her hair. Like we don't need, like like, nobody wants your hair. Like your hair is just keep it like no super duper. Nobody wants your hair. Just stop dropping bombs on people. Simple. Seems easy to me. Stop preventing Palestinian women from not being able to pass checkpoints while they're in labor and allowing their babies to die at checkpoints. This happens Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. Don't want your hair. Just let us go to the hospital when we're in labor. Like super simple. Also, malnutrition and stunting of growth happens when you don't allow a certain amount of food to get in, right? If you are hungry, you won't be able to grow to your best potential. Right. So, yeah, we see this all the time. We see this all the time. I mean, even just the notion of like Israel vaccinated half of their population, look how organized they are. And that's the joke that Michael Che made on SNL. It was like, well, they only vaccinated the half that they consider, you know, to be human beings, just that half. Did people react 
normally to that joke? Did they did they take it in good humor? I don't know. What do you mean? Oh, because they didn't. Uh, a lot of people <laughs> freaked out at Michael Che and was oh, like, yeah, that's sure. anti-Semitism. I thought you were talking and about me. I, I was like, it was a great joke. No, no, no. And I just, I remember like a simpler time when Jews had a sense of humor. You have a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also enjoyed the joke. I thought it was You're funny. not a juju. That's what they say. They do say that. They say that about me. You taught me the word juju last time. Yeah. We don't say that with Muslims. You're not a Muslim Muslim. That's not a thing. Yeah. Well, with Muslims, it's like you're either in or you're out. You know what I mean? Y'all <laughs> y'all don't fuck around. <laughs> Woman that you mentioned, that grandmother, Which that one? booby. Hetty Epstein. Hetty Epstein. People, like Zionist Jews, will ask me, they'll be like, how can you sell out your own people by standing with the Palestinians? And my people are people like Hetty Epstein, right? That's my booby. That's a woman who I could look up to and say, that's my family. My people are not the people who are demolishing homes in, you know, the West Bank, Gaza, everywhere. They're, they're just not, they're not those people. That's not who I consider my people. And so I have no problem speaking for human rights, right? And if you do, and you don't consider me your people because I speak up for Palestinian human rights, uh, maybe it says a little bit more about you than it does about whether or not I'm part of the Jewish culture or religion, right? For sure. Hetty Epstein wouldn't look at me and be like, hey, he's not one of us. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, she probably squeezed your cheeks. <laughs> she, would be, she would look at me and be like, the punum, the punum. <laughs> The people who say I'm not Jewish, by the way, tell me why I have allergy medicine right there. Okay, you know what I mean. I let it. I let people know I'm a Jew. Jew. That's that's real. What are Jews allergic to things? Yeah, yeah we got a lot of we got a lot really? of stuff. Yeah, we got a lot. We got a lot of issues. Jew, Jews, <laughs> but, yeah. Jew, Jews got a lot of issues. <laughs> yeah, because it's like we got IBS a lot. Um, we have. Isn't that just like anyone above thirty? Well, if you want to, I mean, I feel like all millennials have IBS. <laughs> then it is, but it's it's juice. We also have like Tay Sachs, you know what I mean? And um, yeah, just just a lot of allergies, a lot of allergies. allergies. Okay, tell so, me I'm not Jewish. Tell me. <laughs> no, I won't do that. No, no, I know, but uh, this is that was for that was the for audience. Them. We got a brand new segment for you folks. This is called Name That Colonizer. What we're going to do is we're going to read you famous quotes from famous colonizers, and you will get to guess who said it. I'll go ahead and start with the first one. Okay. Quote, there is no place for two nations on this land, and there is no solution other than Palestinian Arabs expelling to neighboring countries. Not even a village or one family should remain on this land. Who said it? I feel like it was Ben Gurion. You are incorrect. It was Whites, the oh. director of the Department of Lands and Forestry at the Jewish National Fund 1940. We've got another one for you, folks. And I quote, is it possible to see people leaving their homeland voluntarily? Surely not. And this is why Palestinians won't give up their sovereignty over their land, except by using violence against them. No, this was for sure Ben Gurion. You're wrong again. What? Jabotinsky. Are you kidding me? Weird motherfucker. Are you serious? I feel like Ben Gurion said yeah. the same thing. Well, they kind of had similar ideas. That's why they worked well together. Right. Okay. All right. This is an oldie, but a goodie. Yeah. 
Okay, we have another quote for you. I'm so bad at this. It's all right. You don't really need to know what the colonizers had to say, right? No. They, they pretty much all said the same thing, and that's true. Colonized. This next quote, Palestinians must be expelled outside the country's borders by depriving them of work. This process of displacement must be done secretly and cautiously. That's a Herzl quote. You are right! <laughs> you are correct! Okay. If there is something I know, it is my Herzl history. Because I have read quite a bit of this man's letters and parts of his journal and done a lot of research on him. I feel really bad about my knowledge of later colonizers, but I know a Herzl quote when I see one. Super duper fuck that guy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you have so many. Oh my God, this is great. Our next quote is, despite everything, Palestinian Arabs are idealistic and self-sacrificing. It's got like a weird paternalistic sort of flavor to it. And I feel like maybe we got that recognition from Jabotinsky. I'm going Jabotinsky all the way. You are wrong. Damn it. I that was David Ben-Gurion. I suck at this. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that bald-headed, weird-looking motherfucker. I, I got, his face like a basketball. Literally got all of them wrong, except for one. You know what's weird? I also heard that, this I found out really, like, recently, is that Palestinians cannot pick zathar, the plant. Like, it's part of, it's like our food. Like, it's like a breakfast sure. staple in Palestinian food. You know, Americans know it as yeah. zatar. Zatar, bro. Americans know it as Zatar, but we can't pick Zatar plants. Israel, they've outlawed it so that we can't participate in one of our cultural traditions, which is to pick Zatar and to eat it. Zatar is thyme, essentially. It's a, the thyme plant. Meanwhile, another example of crocodile sympathy is during Tubishvat, there were a ton of Zionist creators talking about how you know, Tu B'Shvat is this Jewish holiday where we express our love and desire to uphold the natural world and to honor nature in all of its forms, specifically the land of Eretz Israel, but also, you know, just in general to have a symbiotic relationship with nature. And at the same time that they're making these videos on Tu B'Shvat, there are illegal settlers and the IDF and the government burning thousands of olive trees that are older than the state of Israel. By right? like a lot. Not even close. Some of and, these trees are thousands of years old, literally. And I think they burned over 10,000 trees is the last figure that I saw that approximates. But how can you possibly talk about loving the natural world and talk about how Olive trees are an important part of Israeli culture when you are uprooting and burning olive trees that are, you know, iconic. Not only that, but they form our agricultural economy because Palestinians are farmers and we make right. olive oil from those trees and we we tend to those trees and it's part of our, you know, tradition to pick olives and make olive oil and to use the wood and to, you know, like we have a relationship with those trees. 
There's a there's a really, really, really poignant excerpt from one of Steve Salaita's books called Uncivil Rights. And in it, he says, there's a certain way to know that Israelis are outsiders to the land. But unfortunately, it doesn't resonate much in the United States, in no small part because Americans are fundamentally outsiders to the land they occupy as well. He goes on to say, I speak of olive trees, which exemplify the phrase labor of love. The trees take years to bear fruit. Once they do, though, they can provide for centuries. The curved, cragged trees blending into the tawny environs of the surrounding earth are ubiquitous throughout the West Bank and the Galilee, often arranged in a captivating symmetry, and nearly every Palestinian I know owns some type of olive wood icon. However, since 1967, Israel has bulldozed more than 800,000 olive trees. And Jewish settlers, as you mentioned, Michael, routinely destroy orchards, having uprooted more than 11,000 olive trees in 2014 alone. Israeli officials basically say that they are citing practical reasons for their destruction, all of them involving the word security. Much of the time, however, they're simply being punitive. He goes on to say that a Palestinian would never destroy a healthy olive tree. And this, never. in and of itself, is proof that the Palestinian is indigenous to the land because the Palestinian has a relationship with the land. That a settler coming from any old country outside of this land does not know and does not have. This is why it's easy for the Israeli army to bulldoze and uproot an olive tree, but a Palestinian would never uproot an olive tree. It's sacred for us. I mean, it's, 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 it's what nourishes us. It's what feeds us. It's how we feed our families. It's how we support our families, like Palestinians and their olive trees and, and their land. Like this is our, like we're farmers. Like at the end of the day, we're farmers. Like this is who we are. You're either a farmer or you're a fisherman, you know? You're either from the land or from the sea. Do you remember... It was like a few months ago they were talking about like the new Obama book and there's like a line in it where he goes Stand that motherfucker. where he goes yeah I used to pretend that I was into Fanon to get the ladies yeah he said he used to pretend he was a Marxist yeah what like bitches, who bitches love Marxism you but, know what I mean yes but like also <laughs> what that's, yeah, that's a psychopath admission yeah <laughs> that's a psychotic admission yeah yeah for sure it's like pre yeah, i pretended you know to be woke to get the hot girls like what you know what obama also said recently obama no. said the intercept reported this obama said that apac has disproportionate influence over every single item that gets voted on in Congress and that anybody who speaks out against APAC is committing political suicide. They will ultimately probably get a challenger, like a primary challenger, or they'll just, they'll, they'll make their lives very difficult is what he said. Yeah. So shouts out to Obama for admitting that what we all knew, which is that the Israeli government indirectly controls the U.S. government. Yeah. I mean... I can't, I, I don't even know why he would say that now. What's he got to lose? He doesn't need them anymore. Yeah. They're not going to kill him. You know what I mean? He's fine. Okay. Yeah, he's on vacation. He's good. He's having he's a good like time. He's like not paddling and making Michelle do all the paddling. Did you see that picture? He I was mean, like he's... laid back and she was like working really hard. I feel hard. like he carried the, the couple for a couple of years. You know what I mean? He, he, 
like she did it she did her thing with the garden you know but like i feel like he was pulling the heavy weight with all yeah. the assassinations and stuff she didn't have to do that no she no, wasn't blowing up God. anwar al-awlaki yeah u.s um, citizen and children as well you know what was really good that comedian that roasted him obama yeah, the was one it, that made the it, drone jokes at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Larry Wilmore. Yes. Do you remember this? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah, he made some drone jokes at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and it was, like, met with groans, because everybody, like, couldn't believe that he went there. That's so wild, because Obama made jokes about how he was going to shoot the Jonas Brothers for talking to his daughters, and everybody oh, ate it up. Everybody was like, that's good comedy. You know what we love is extrajudicial assassination of pop culture because you're an <laughs> overprotective dad. That's what we like in comedy. I did not know he made that joke. <laughs> Yeah. Shout out to the Jonas Brothers. Retweet this, guys. We need it. <laughs> Please help. <laughs> help us hey, hey, guys, we got your back. You know what I mean? It's it's 10 years too late, but we got your back. <laughs> yeah. That bit about pretending to be a leftist. I mean, it just told me everything I needed to know about him. Well, the fact that he bombed Yemen the third or fourth day in office told me everything I needed to know. Yeah. Yeah. Democrats. Gotta love them. Gotta they're your, love them. They're your only option. Right. Better than Trump, right? You gotta love them or else you're a racist. Right. But it's just and it's crazy. like, yeah, instead we have uh, segregationist Joe Biden, the racist. Much better. So much better. It feels good. Yeah. And on Palestine. And who said you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist. The man who said that if there, that the money that we give Israel is the best money we've ever spent. Right? Mm. That's what he said. And he said that so much so, and I'm quoting him, he said if there was not an Israel, we would have to create an Israel in order to give it that money. Wow. That's have actually you... pretty telling because that's exactly what they did. That's crazy that he said that. He, he Did he that's, give you the game plan? That is a Joe Biden quote. He that said, literally reminds me of when they told me we were drinking together with the IDF guys and they were like, yeah, we just blackmail them. You know what I mean? It is the exact same type of thing where it's like, wow, mask off. This is what the plan was. Okay. Yeah. Because I think that if you look at a map of all of the US bases in the Middle East and how they're surrounding Iran, that Israel, if you fill that in, looks sort of just like a military base that we just send money to, to continue further destabilizing the Middle East. Yeah. I mean, the the, the imperial connection is, is, is so clear, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. through it through israel america is is has its position and has its stronghold in the entire region yep. it's it's just an extension of american imperialism which takes us back to the very beginning of this when we were talking about the black power activists right and all of the black activists and poets and writers that spoke about these connections and spoke about how they were compelled to support palestinians because palestinians were fighting this anti-imperialist fight which was the cause of their own suffering that they were dealing with in the United States in their anti-racist struggle. All of our liberation is linked. Absolutely. That's why I keep hashtagging. We're not free until we're all free. Cause I really believe that you believe that, you know, the people that we look up to and, 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 you know, that educated us believe that. And I think it's true, right? Why do you think that the Israeli, uh, government and the pro-Israel lobbies have listed intersectionality as one of the greatest threats. 
Like they've identified it as a specific threat to Israel. It's just like, they're just basically telling us that when we get together and, 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 and share, you know, solidarity with one another and express support for one another as oppressed people, that that's a danger to them because they, just like the United States, just like any other nation which has conquered another people, are engaging in the most obvious, um, you know, technique, which is to separate us, to divide us, and then to conquer us. And if you look at Palestine, that's exactly what happened. Palestinians in Gaza are treated one way. Palestinians in Israel are treated another way. Palestinians in the West Bank are treated in a third way. Palestinians in the refugee camps are treated in a fourth, fifth, sixth way, depending on which refugee camp you're in, Right. So, and then Palestinians in the diaspora, like myself, well, if we ever try to go back, well, then we're dealt with in a separate way. So they've just split us up into all these separate, you know, groups and they've disenfranchised us and, 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 and made us, you know, just small little communities of Palestinians that are disconnected from one another. Yeah. And it's interesting um, how you were talking about sharing knowledge and sharing resources and sharing, you know, experiences with one another is a threat to the state of Israel. And it reminds me of how the human traffickers who enslaved black people in the United States, they were adamant that black people couldn't read. They were adamant that they could not learn strategies of liberation through the method of reading, through shared knowledge, shared experience they crack down on that heavily. And that's because it's a threat. Organizing is a threat. The ability to communicate yourself effectively is a threat. What we are doing right now is a threat to the stability of oppression, right? Because when everybody gets on the same page and recognizes that it's oppression, things will have to change. That's why they spend so much money on informational warfare, right? propaganda. That's why Hasbara exists. That's why anytime you say the words Israel or Palestine online, you're immediately bombarded with hundreds of comments talking about, you know, Bible verses and just conflating Judaism and Zionism, accusing you of being an anti-Semite. All of those trolls, which are usually just auto-generated AI bots at this point, they are there for the express purpose of continuing to sow dissent, continuing to create division, making sure that we do not get on the same page as people and unite against oppression, unite against apartheid, rise up against uh, inequality. Right. That, that reminds me of like um, recently when I was researching uh, the International Criminal Court decision finding that it, the court had jurisdiction to investigate war crimes in the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. And I typed in into Google, ICC Israel, and the very first link, which was a sponsored link. Meaning you have to pay for it. Yes. Was an Israeli government link that was a brand new website that was created that said the ICC is uh, targeting Israel. The ICC decision is a political decision and it takes you to this brand new website that the government has made, basically just saying that everything that the decision stands for is totally wrong and Israel's being singled out and treated unfairly. And it provides all these links and all of this stuff. And that's the first thing that you 
that you find before you even actually find the actual decision itself. And everybody knows that oppression is a super apolitical act. I mean, they're making it political. <laughs> they're making the war crimes that you've committed political. Yeah. It just goes back to what we said before, which is like, they never actually respond on the merits. No. They just deflect. And it, all of the, you know, the discourse that is very common is logical fallacy. Sure. 100%. You know, they'll discredit the speaker. You know, we learn this like in rhetoric class, like in mm -hmm. high school. Okay. Discredit the speaker, change the subject, you know, um, attack, you know, attack. Um, create a logical fallacy, like a straw man argument. Yeah. Create the straw man, build it up, break it down. Not what we're talking about. The, the state of Israel has engages in all of these fallacies when it is defending itself against very real, legitimate, you know, accusations of, of crimes. Like, instead of focusing on the Palestinian victims, we are just engaging in a sort of like back and forth, like that completely erases them. And in fact, even when Palestinians would make their location known to Israel, when Israel was bombing Gaza, Israel would bomb the places where Palestinians said they were even if that was a UN school. Israel has bombed UN schools before. Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch has reported it. I mean, it's it's widely reported. Not only hospitals. schools, hospitals, right? And so these are some of the very crimes that are going to be up before the ICC, right? Including the shooting of protesters. Israel shot and killed hundreds of protesters during the Gaza um, return march in 2018 and 2019. Targeting medics as well. Razana Jar, remember her, the Palestinian medic who was aiding, who was assisting with an injured Palestinian protester who was shot by a sniper because Israeli snipers literally shoot at Palestinian protesters that pose absolutely no threat to them whatsoever. Targeting the press as well. Yes, journalists, whatever it may be. And Razana Jar was this Palestinian medic who was there the day of the protest and was helping other injured protesters who had also been shot by snipers. And she was shot in the heart by an Israeli sniper and was killed. Like, no accountability. Absolutely no accountability. Nothing will ever happen to the person who killed her. Ever. You know? We likely won't even ever know their name. No, and it, it, I, I don't even know if we do or not. I mean, the New York Times actually ran a full like front page spread about the murder of Rosanna Jar and it doesn't matter. You know, they recreated the whole thing using technology to figure out where the bullet came from and all this. And they decided that it actually like was aimed at her heart. You know, it just doesn't matter. You can shoot a medic. It's not a war crime. You know, it just doesn't matter. There's no accountability. It's that. And there, you know, and it's, it's, it's a lot of other things like, you know, uh, the ICC is going to look at the settlements as well. Over 700,000 um, settlers in the West Bank, they're going to examine that as well. So it's just frustrating because at the end of the day, we're just, again, instead of talking about the facts, instead of talking about why there's a case to begin with, we're not, we're not even mentioning why there's a case to begin with. We're not even actually assessing the facts that are being alleged and the evidence that is being brought in support of the facts. We're just being immediately told, it's political, dismiss it, nothing happened. You know what's crazy with the ICC thing? In response to 
um, the decision by the prosecutor to pursue this um, this case, as well as a case in relation to um, alleged war crimes committed by the U.S. and Afghanistan, the Trump administration actually enacted sanctions on the ICC as well as the prosecutor herself, which is unprecedented. Okay, this is insane. This is not how, how the rule of law is supposed to function. In order for the court to do its job in total independence, it has to be able to bring the cases that it feels are appropriate. How would you even sanction the International Criminal Court? I thought sanctions were just like restricting the flow of goods and stuff. No, you can sanction entities. You can also sanction people. And that's exactly what the Trump administration did. They sanctioned the court and they sanctioned the chief prosecutor. So basically, it means that anybody who cooperates with the court, be it um, a person, you know, a lawyer, whatever it may be, somebody who provides evidence, can now be potentially liable civilly or criminally because they're participating in the court's actions, the court's functions, and the U.S. has decided that the court is sanctioned, and so is the chief prosecutor. So this is so what they Trump made it, did. They made it illegal to look into Israeli war crimes? In a way, yes. Why? And American war crimes in Afghanistan. Well, sure, that's a given. They don't want to talk about that. Yes. But here's the, this is, this is what's insane, right? The rule of law only works when you are applying the law equally to all people, right? That makes sense. Like if the law is not applied equally to all people, but it is only applied to those weaker parties and the parties with the most power can basically decide whether or not the law applies to them, then we don't have a system of rule of law at all, but we have a few gangsters and mafiosos, you know? That's what we've got. Running the world because the court has to be able to do its work in total independence. If it cannot do that because sanctions are being put on it by the United States, then what does I that say reading, about justice? It's not it's 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 not about truth, it's about politics. 100%. I remember reading Justice for Some by Glenn Greenwald. Um, and it's uh, you're talking you're, you're probably thinking the Nora Erica book that Yeah, she has a book by the same name. Yeah, yeah, but Justice for Some came out in like 2011 by um, Glenn Greenwald, same title. Okay. And it talks about how the George Bush administration is beyond reproach for prosecution and how presidents have continued this process by which they allow other presidents to get away with war crimes. And they talk about how prosecuting them would be undiplomatic or untoward um but untoward towards who right because i'm sure there are millions of people in iraq who'd love to see george bush strung up and uh you know prosecuted to the fullest extent you know what he's doing Stick instead painting yes he's painting bad paintings and he's like selling them. Yeah, it's, it's so there's, awkward. That, it really does test my willingness to believe in justice, right? Yeah. To believe in humanity that like there's there are children who are dead and George Bush sells his paintings. 
it really messes with me. It's tough. I know. Dick Cheney's you... still alive. Henry Kissinger is still alive. Rumsfeld. You know what I mean? How do how are these people still alive and free? You know what I mean? That part. Euthanize them or lock them up. <laughs> I think I care. Yeah, I'm gonna use that. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Palestine Pod. Please like, subscribe, and comment on our YouTube page. Stay safe and stay dangerous. And don't forget to send us an email. We have set up our email, palestinepod at gmail.com, palestinepod at gmail.com. Send us your stories, comments, questions, concerns. And if you're a crazy person and you contact us, we'll probably read it on air. So can't wait to hear from you guys, palestinepod at gmail.com. Palestine Park Expand your mind Palestine Park